Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Thanks, Josh. That was that. This is the second time in my life I've worn a head mic. Uh, the first was preaching here. Well, how are we doing? There it is. There it is. There it is. All right. Good morning. Uh, it's it's very it's 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 really nice to be with you this morning. Are do we are we going to have the PowerPoint? Maybe. Oh, okay. Maybe. Okay. Cool. Great. Um, well, for those that don't know me, my name is Joshua. Uh, my wife and I work with a Christian ministry just one town over called South uh, in Southborough, but the ministry is called Labrie, and we live in this large house. And our coworkers and I welcome guests who come that are in seasons of transition seasons of difficulty, have big questions about life, vocation, faith, and live in community and think about these things together. Uh, So it's just a little bit about me, in case you didn't know. But this sermon series that we've been going through is called uh, Popular and Powerful, or Popular versus Powerful. Anyway, those popular and powerful are in the title of the sermon series. But we're working through the book of Kings in the Old Testament. And we're looking at the sort of often conflict between those in power and then people that are called by God as prophets. And when you think, I don't know, Ian, that he shared this comedian, Louis C.K., he's a disgraced comedian now. He's not particularly uh, like a church-friendly sort of comedian, if, if you know him at all. But about 10 years ago, he was on a late-night show, and he was answering a question uh, on why he doesn't want his daughters to have smartphones. This was 10 years ago, too. And he, his answer is pretty dark. It's a little nihilistic. I'm not endorsing it. Uh, and, and our unwillingness to stop, our unwillingness to be still, to be alone with ourselves for a moment, is trouble for our souls. There's a guy named Mike Zigarelli, which is just a great name to say, Zigarelli, who was at Messiah University, and he did a five-year study of 20,000 Christians asking what the biggest distraction, what the biggest cause of, of, of uh, the biggest inhibitor of spiritual growth are doctors, lawyers, and pastors. So it's true across the board for many of us. And in all of this hurry and all of the self-avoidance that we're allowed by our technology, Ronald Rollheiser warns that while we might end up as good people, uh, we will be people who are not very deep. He goes on to say, not bad, just busy, or whatever. This was the day that he had the most to say about. This was peak prophet day. Uh, it happens in 1 Kings 18. If you're, you grew up in church and went to Sunday school, I guarantee you heard this story time and time again. But it's this showdown between Elijah and 450 prophets uh, on, on Mount Carmel. This isn't the text just yet. This is 19. Um, and there's this show, unbelievable thing that God does. It's quite, it's quite amazing. Uh, and Elijah wins, and the God of Israel wins. Uh, this Shaf, this these prophets are actually rounded up, and they're all killed. And you would think this is like peak prophet moment. This is the best career day he's ever, he's ever had on Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel stories are the sort of stories that we often hear in church. They're the stories that make up people's testimonies, and understandably so. They're awesome. They're really great. They're spectacular. They're big. 
But Elijah's life with God is not only Mount Carmel. It doesn't end there. It keeps going. And in less than 24 hours, we're place. And he does so because there he wants to encounter, he wants to pray to his father, but also be encountered by his father. And we'll see with Elijah, it's a little bit different uh, than it is with Jesus. Things are often different between everybody and Jesus. But Jesus chose to go into the wilderness. He chose to withdraw into solitude. And the matter is more or less forced on Elijah, because things do not go his way. And if you go into the desert, if you go into the wilderness, into a lonely place in your life with God, in your life with others, whether it's chosen or unchosen, we need to develop new skills, new ways of praying, new ways of encountering God, seeing God, if God's not showing up in the Mount Carmel ways we're used to. And much of Jesus's life, I think, is we we can see him moving from uh, a, a pole, like kind of two poles. Like he has rich community with his disciples, with his friends. He's often at parties. He's often drinking wine. He's celebrating. You get the impression he's someone who likes people and likes to be around other people. So he has this rich community where he's known and he knows others. But then the other end is he withdraws to these silent places. He withdraws in solitude to be alone from, alone with his father. And so when I speak of solitude, I'm not just speaking about spirituality for introverts uh, or isolation or loneliness, but two parts of the Christian life, uh, of, of life with God, which is a rich life with others, and then a life of intimacy, of stillness, of quiet, of meeting God in these desolate places. Uh, and so I want to now move into reading our text for this morning. Uh, and so this is now picking up in 1 Kings 19, if you have it, if you have your Bible with you. This is right after, again, Mount Carmel. So Ahab told Jezebel, that's the king and the queen, all that Elijah had done. Fire coming down from heaven, killing the other prophets. And now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of those of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There's more to the story. We're going to finish the rest of the chapter in just a moment. But I just want to pick up what happens to Elijah when he moves into the wilderness, when he leaves his servant behind, and he finds himself in this place of silence, in this place of solitude, where he genuinely encounters himself. And the first thing to say is he's exhausted. 
He's completely worn down. He's been a busy prophet, and he's depleted from that work. And he's, I mean, as great as it was that there was this big spectacular thing that God did, fire fell from heaven, the goal of a prophet is never just big spectacular things. He wants the people's hearts to turn back to God. He wants the, the, the nation to, to be defined by justice and by proper worship. And you could imagine that as the fire fell from heaven and the prophets uh, of Baal are, are, are getting killed, he's like, this is it. This is the moment. This is what my whole career has been building up to. The whole nation's going to turn. They're going to join me. We're going to set things right. And it doesn't happen at all. The exact opposite happens. He has a bounty on his head. He's alone. And he realizes, I'm no more effective than all the other prophets that have gone before me in turning these people around. I've, I've failed at this job. And it's better for me to just let go. It's better for me to not be here. And so he's alone, and he's away from all the busy hurriedness of being a prophet. Uh, and, and he's forced to confront himself. <clears throat> and it's not particularly pleasant. It's not a peaceful encounter with himself. The scriptures present our lives with God in profoundly honest ways. The good, the bad, and the painful, and the confusing. Elijah is in despair. And I, I have to admit, when I heard people talk about silence and solitude as spiritual practices, about being quiet and still, I often thought of people uh, usually in white linen, uh, kind of on a beach or... And definitely not the Atlantic Ocean, definitely the Pacific Ocean. Um, or on a mountaintop retreat, looking over water, and it's, it's characterized by peace and serenity and inner calm and zen. But that's just not the picture of what happens here. And in my own life, as I've been driven to places of having to confront myself away from a busy life, uh, away from constant distractions, it hasn't all been that same way for me either. And it's not the case with Elijah. There is a, a Catholic writer from, uh, who, who passed away maybe 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more, named Henry Nowen. And he writes a lot about solitude, silence. He writes a lot about the spiritual life. He's, he's definitely worth reading, I think. He's very helpful. But these are two things that I pulled from him that I have found very helpful. He says this, Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. He goes on to say, solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society, and I would say also ourselves, and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. Solitude is the place of the great struggle, the great encounter, the struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the subject, as the substance of the new self. And, and going back, back to Elijah, we listen to the honesty of this hurried and busy and exhausted prophet. He tells God he's done. He doesn't want to live anymore. It's better if he was dead. I'm just going to lay underneath this broom tree and I'd prefer not to wake up. Our family has recently been introduced to this very simple, but I think very effective question when one of us is having a bad day. Uh, we can ask the question, do you want help or do you want a hug? Sometimes when I'm having a bad day 
and I feel like I just want to get under the broom tree and be left alone and feel like it'd be better for me not even to wake up. I have failed, I have messed up. What I don't want is sort of a three-point strategy about how we can fix what's gone wrong or how we can do whatever. I simply want to be heard. I want to vent, I want to let it out, and I want to hug. I want to be known in that moment. There are sometimes too, though, where I also want help uh, in those moments. And it, I love this. God seems to see this in Elijah uh, in this moment, and he honors it. God's, God responds to him in this moment of deep desolation. And, and before offering help or advice or, oh, you should have done this, Elijah, or you could definitely do this. In a sense, God gives him a hug. God honors his exhaustion and his limitations as a human. He is worn out. In the work that we do at Labrie, we spend a lot of time with people who are having big questions about life and faith. Can they trust the Bible? Can they trust the church? What do I do with these things that have happened to me in the past that I don't know how to make sense of? They're big, hard things. And sometimes, instead of offering a, a, a great book or giving some sort of uh, apologetics lecture or something like that, sometimes what people need is just a few good nights sleep uh, they need some home-cooked meals. They need a crying session and a listening ear. They need that hug. And I, I love that this is God's response to Elijah in the moment where he's just done. He doesn't get a pep talk. He gets God acknowledging he has needs. And it happens twice. It's very interesting to me that it happens twice. So despair, fear, exhaustion, and also a bounty on his head have driven Elijah into the wilderness, into solitude and silence. He's tired, he's worn down by a busy, busy life. And away from the mighty spectacle of his prophetic work, which was really cool, I mean, uh, Mount Carmel was awesome, he's begun a different sort of work. There are hardened and hurt places in his heart that the busyness of the life as a prophet, the constant distractions of things, they don't come to the surface. But here he's alone, he's by himself, in a desolate place, and they come up. And he's begun a new sort of work with God, exposing those things to God, bringing them to God in prayer to see what happens. Now I want to keep going uh, with the second part. Uh, so he's, again, he's, he's, he's gotten this supernatural food, and he's off on this journey. Uh, and it says, there he came to a cave, and lodged in it. This is after a 40-day journey. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And then he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it, broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak 
and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of... um, That's sort of cut off there, but yeah. uh, Of Abel, Melahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God sends him to this place, Horeb, this Mount Horeb, which the text calls the Mountain of God. Uh, And deep in Elijah's story, in his spiritual experience, and in his people's history, also the name of this mountain is also Sinai. You've probably heard of Mount Sinai if you've read through the Old Testament. But this is a place of possibility. This is a place where his ancestors had encountered God when they needed him most. It was here that God called Moses from the burning bush, and uh, where later God passed Moses by and assured him that his presence would go with him. This is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and established his covenant with his people. If there was any place where an Israelite might encounter God, it was here at Horeb. Spiritual renewal, possibility, and promise are there. But that's not the only thing about Horeb or Mount Sinai. It's completely surrounded by wilderness. There are lots and lots of deserts around it. Uh, if If the picture is still available. I pulled this off of Google Images. There's some controversy over where exactly Mount Sinai is that I don't, it's up above my pay grade. Uh, but as you can see, the, the landscape around it is not exactly lush and fertile uh, at all. Uh, it, it, it's quite a desolate place. There's another picture here of what sort of the landscape there looks like. This is this is harsh, harsh place. And while there is a literal massive desert surrounding Horeb that Elijah has to, has to pass through for 40 days and 40 nights, Christians through the ages have seen this sort of desert experience also as a powerful metaphor for much of our life with God. Even though we might wish uh, things were otherwise, uh, but there's a lot that we have to go through between Mount Carmel and between Mount Sinai. And that's a lot of difficult wilderness. And the desert offers no one-size-fits-all spirituality, spiritual quick fixes. It's not a conference. It's not a podcast. It's not an app. It's not a sermon. It's not a special technique. But it's a place where, in silence and in solitude, we encounter the truth of who we are and who God is, apart from the noise, apart from the distractions, apart from the hurry of our lives we can't run from ourselves anymore. It's all that we're left with, us and God. And Elijah has walked into this emptiness for 40 days and 40 nights. And he gets to this point, he gets to this cave, 
where God then finally speaks to him and he asks him this question. What are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? It's really interesting to ponder this question. I mean, if God is the one who called Elijah as a prophet in the first place, um, uh, if God's the one who just sent fire down from heaven, which is, I would think, be pretty memorable, just 40 days before, if God was the one who sent the angel uh, uh, who made the special bread and the water, like, I would think God would know the answer to this question. And as it is with a lot of other questions that God asks throughout the Bible, which is an interesting thing to think about. God asks humans questions somewhat regularly throughout the scriptures. It's not that God's getting, wanting to get new information uh, from Elijah. The question, even though God's asking the question, the question is really for Elijah to consider what is going on here? What are you doing here? This is a good question for me. This is a good question, I would assume, for us away from distractions of maybe our phones, the hurriedness of our very important, very rich, very good uh, lives. What are we doing here? What are we about? Silence and solitude are practices that open up space within us so that we can answer that question honestly and also hear what God has to say to us. It's a very simple question, but it's a very difficult question. And Elijah's response, there's an edge to it. There's an edge to Elijah's response. If you, if you go back uh, a couple, or not forward, but back. Um, uh, yeah, he's the only one. Or go back one more. He, he has the same answer twice. You, you feel this edge in it. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I mean, there's, this, it's, it's, there's a lot of truth in what he said right there. But I think there's an edge. It's a hard admission. There's disappointment. This is not where the prophet is supposed to end up, alone in a cave after wandering for 40 days. But these truths, what he says here, these, these are truths that are forged in the difficult but fierce emptiness of the desert, of the wilderness. And it's now he, he takes his pain and his exhaustion and his confusion about life with God, and he's honest with God about it. He brings it to God. It wasn't really supposed to be like this. This wasn't what I thought I signed up for. And again, Elijah doesn't get, at least initially, he doesn't get help. And in a way, he doesn't really get a hug. He gets more than a hug. God calls Elijah the good, the bad, the disappointed. He's invited to come and experience God's presence. In a book on silence and solitude called Invitation to Silence and Solitude, Ruth Haley Barton writes, there, is some, there seems to be some connection between the willingness to enter into this sort of self-knowledge, she's talking about Elijah, and a true encounter with the transforming presence of God. Now, a few weeks back, Sarah preached a really great sermon. And there was this refrain in her sermon that our problems and our pain are not what make us exceptional. They are precious meeting places with God. And in silence and in solitude, when we make space in our lives away from the noise, away from the hurry, these are the things we, that come to the surface. 
These are the things that we can bring before God. And we see this played out in Elijah's life as the Lord comes and passes before him. God is saying, bring your problems, bring your pain, bring yourself. These are the places we meet God. And God comes, right? But he comes not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire. All ways that God has showed up at Mount Horeb before. Uh, and fire, most memorably, just on Mount Carmel. But in a still, small voice, I think is how the King James puts it, in a whisper, I think is how this translation had it. One translation called it a thin silence. Um, God has come in a way and met Elijah in a way that Elijah wasn't expecting. And where Elijah was ready to be done a few days before, uh, God still has more for him to do. And God, Elijah will pass on his mantle. There will be more prophets. There will be more that will happen to the people of Israel. But it's in this space of honest encounter where he's honest with his disappointments, honest with his wandering, honest with his pain, that God meets him. And if the worship team wants to come or start to come back up, I, I just have a few closing sort of practical thoughts about incorporating a practice of solitude and silence into our lives, to ease into it, to incorporate it into our lives, to maybe like Jesus go into the Eremos, go into the, the wilderness, go in to the desert place and ask the question of ourselves, what are we doing here? Apart from the hurriedness, apart from the noise, what are we doing here? And if all this sounds kind of strange and Eastern or, or, or whatever, um, that's, that's, I guess that's for you to figure out. Um, but think about the words of the psalmist, Psalm 46, where God invites, says, be still and know. When this got translated into Latin, which I'm not going to know how to pronounce, uh, the word for be still is basically vacate. Vaca I don't know, how would you, or maybe I want to ask Jacob how to pronounce it right now. But it's the word used to describe vacating a place or taking a vacation. In other words, God is saying, come take a holiday. Make space and come be still. Be leisurely, be free, because it is in this that his presence is known. So I also just, I just, uh, I'm always looking for an opportunity to tell people this. I just completed a couch to 5K program. Uh, and the way that works is you start incrementally. You don't run a 5K the first day. You run for 60 seconds if you can do it. And then you walk for a little while, then you run. So if you're interested in incorporating silence and stillness into your life, I encourage a similar thing. Put your phone on, on uh, sleep. Set a timer for a minute. And find a passage of scripture that has meant something to you. Take the words of the scripture and match it to your breath. Breathe the first half in and breathe out the second half. So sometimes people do, will do like, come to my help, O God. Lord, hurry to my rescue. Match, match the short scripture to your breath. Be still and know that I am God. And anticipate that you're going to be distracted. And that's not a problem. That's just part of life. But think about this exercise, this time of being still. It's like being out on the water in a rowboat. And maybe a speedboat comes by and there's a bunch of waves. The way you deal with the waves is not by trying to go catch up to the speedboat and ask it what it's there for. But just wait and it will reside. Don't judge it. Just let the thought, the thought go by. And I want to just end with one quote about this sort of prayer. Um, 
about praying with silence, being alone with God in solitude. Uh, This comes from a guy named Peter Grieg in his book, How to Pray, uh, a, a guide for normal people, I think is what it's called. He says this, this sort of prayer comes easier to children and folks with learning disabilities or even dementia, not to mention those who are exhausted, bewildered, and burnt out on the brutal world of words and linear productivity. Contemplative prayer reassures us it's okay to just show up in prayer. Some of the most beautiful prayers in the world are children's pictures, the sighs of weary mothers, and music that is unfettered by words. Mm-hmm.